Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Babbles Nonsense Podcast. I have a very special guest for y'all today. It's my first male on the podcast, Monty Burks. He is the founder of Grown Men Fellowship, where he is helping people with their substance abuse, recovery and addiction, and even mental illness. I'm linking his information in the show notes. So if y'all need that, please look there. And he is a wonderful resource. So do not hesitate to reach out and listen along to our conversation about what he does and how he does it. Here we go, guys. Yeah, let me hit record. Make sure I'm recording. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure homie. <laughs> All right. So I have Monty here with us today. He is the founder of Grown Man Fellowship. And I need you to tell us what that is. What is Grown Man Fellowship, Monty? Well, as I close my blind <laughs> on my live interview, so you guys can actually see me. No, they're, uh, they're, I don't have a YouTube, so it's just podcast. They can't see you. Okay. <laughs> so, so they can hear me better than without the sunlight. So what grown men, <laughs> uh, grown men fellowship is an idea, an idea and opportunity. We're, we're trying to um, develop a path to have adult conversations around employment uh, and other issues in society that, that, that men need to have a free space to converse. And it's not just for men, it's for anybody. But our strategic goal, the strategic reach, strategic, strategic community is working with people who have been impacted by the criminal justice system, uh, the treatment community, recovery, addiction, mental health issues, and help them reacclimate to society and then make sure that whatever resources are available, that we articulate that and bridge that gap for them. Uh, that's what Grown Men Fellowship is. The whole concept is fellowshipping with people. You know, I've been through some unique situations myself, and I can remember access to resources were slim to none. And it wasn't that the, act, the resources weren't there. It was access to those resources. That was the problem. So I needed to, uh, I, I needed in my own personal space for somebody to teach me how to reach those resources. And I had a wonderful support system. But, you know, like I know, John, there, mm-hmm. there's, there's millions of people that don't have a support system. They don't yeah. even have to have been affected by any system. They can just be your average everyday American that just doesn't know what wealth of uh, resources are out there. Well, yeah. So like working in the emergency room, we have a lot of psychiatric patients that come in and regardless if they have family or not, like the psychiatric care here in Alabama, I'm not sure if I obviously did not introduce Monty well enough. He is in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, We're good friends from our hometown, Winchester. So I've known him for a while. So he's in Nashville, but here in Alabama, all of psych has literally just up and left. Like all these psych facilities have shut down. So there's not even a lot of support system for psychiatric patients to get their help. They need like, they can't get their medicines. There's no place for them to go. And a lot of times, like the one place that we have here is Wellstone and they can't even get in to see them for like four to six months. So it's like, what are they supposed to do in between there? So they come to the ER. I mean, Oh oh man, absolutely. That's, that's where, that's where part of, you know, part of me and my, the work I do, is um, community collaboration. If the communities around people would invest in people enough to try to understand significant issues around yeah. mental health and substance abuse, the community could actually pull people up and hold them until they can get them to a facility. There's a lot of community support that people can give. If, if for nothing else, understanding a diagnosis understanding a, a understanding an issue, not going to social media for, to be their doctor, not going to WebMD, yeah. trying to diagnose their neighbor, instead um, seeking, seeking knowledge and wise counsel from, from professionals 
to learn that, you know, sometimes people that are going through a mental health episode or have substance use disorder, sometimes they just need somebody to talk to. Yeah. They don't need you to give them advice. They just might need you to be like, hey, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. You know, let, I can give you a hug or, or social media fist dap, fist bump, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so you were speaking earlier about your unique situations. How did you develop, like what, what set this off? Like what, what made you say, you know what, I'm going to put this into play. Is it, is it because you had such a good support system that you wanted other people to have a support system? And, but what, what kind of led to that? Cause obviously there's things in our lives that lead to where we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my struggle, part of my struggles were, you know, was, was all centered around substance use disorder and addicted to lifestyles that just weren't um, conducive to success. You know, I was, I was uh, surrounding myself with misery and I can, but I can remember, uh, you know, and I, and I, the, the stuff that I was going through was what a lot of 18 to 25 year old uh, people are going through, especially guys, because our brain doesn't actually mature to around 24, 25 years old. You guys, yeah. can, that's another podcast. We can look up the science <laughs> on that later, but you can no, look it's at true, it. It's true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, that our female counterparts, they're mature at like 12. You know, it takes us to age 25 to realize that you don't have to push the pedal as fast on the car just because it's there. <laughs> um, you, know, you can check our in, you can check insurance rates everywhere. Men's insurance doesn't drop to 25 years old. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the insurance people figured it out a long time ago. <laughs> but, I, you know, I I, um, you know, going through some of the struggles that I went through, I did have a support system. But I remember being around a lot of people who didn't. And even with my support system, they supported me because they loved me. Uh, but they didn't necessarily even know what the resources were, but they were willing to learn. And so that's kind of where, where I come from with this is, you know, part of the recovery process, part of the resiliency that's in my life, um, it came from me being able to, to one, is realize that when I was in a, uh, when I got in a situation where I felt the similar storm, that I didn't have to get wet again. There were umbrellas out there. You know, there was yeah. shelter for me to walk on. There was a car for me to get into, a house for me to go in. And me knowing that so many other people are like, okay, similar storm. I'm just going to walk out in the rain and see what happens because they don't know the resources. They don't know who to call. They mm -hmm. don't realize that there are hotlines. There are suicide prevention hotlines. There are people that you can literally text. There's national text hotlines you can go to. Oh, I didn't when you have know suicidal ideation. Absolutely. And I'll send them to you so you can send them out to your listeners. Yeah. Share to social media. But there are national hotlines where people have social uh, suicidal ideations, you know, and there, there are numbers in Tennessee as well as Alabama where people need help with substance use disorder to at least connect them to someone to have some kind of, kind of peer conversation. But we didn't have that when I was going through stuff. I just had a you know a very strong mother in my life that was like, you know, I'm not going for it. You're not going to go back and go through these situations. I'm going to help you get your life together or else she put she put that old Southern, uh, <laughs> Southern, Southern Pentecostal love and grace on me. But that's part of my recovery process was I meant, I said it early on that I was going to give back so people didn't have to go through the same misery that I did. I was not afraid. Let, let me throw something at you in the process. I'm, yeah. I'm in, I'm in long-term recovery. This is for the listeners. I'm in long-term recovery from substance use disorder. I was addicted to um, ecstasy and ketamine in my early 20s. You had that, access to ketamine? I, when in, my, in my early 20s, John, I had access to everything. Wow. Um, like, and, I'm shocked because, I mean, like, I didn't even hear about ketamine until a couple of years ago when they brought it into the ER. I didn't know that you could get that on the street. Ab absolutely. And this was, you know, 1999, 2000. Wow. Um, and it was, you know, so it was a popular, it was a popular street drug. And, you know, in, 
club scene. I was, I was in the club stuff and, yeah. you know, I got, I got caught up in a lifestyle and those were the two things that kept me connected to the lifestyle or okay. the lifestyle connect. You know, there was a correlate between the two. I don't yeah. know. I'll never know which one pulled the other one, uh, <laughs> other one, the worst, but I remember uh, every time I tried to stop doing one or the other, that I would go through a mental, mental withdrawals, mental okay. withdrawals would then go to physiological withdrawals. And I was like, you know what I'm going to, and a lot of us do that and don't even realize it. People go yeah. through withdrawals from Coca-Colas. Caffeine. Um, from, I can't stop. Caffeine. I can't stop yeah. drinking uh, um, coffee. So imagine like, something that is damaging your insides and yeah. damaging your brain as opposed to a coffee bean that actually stimulates your brain. So you mm-hmm. can think. So the coffee, so, you know, the coffee is one thing, but something that's ruining your insides is something else. And, you know, I just can, I can remember no resources, nobody I could talk to. And if I did talk to somebody, the first thing people would say was, you know, I'm like, Hey, listen, I, if I was to go to somebody and say, I, I, you know, I use this, that, the other, um, I need some help. The first thing they'll do is call me a name because society programs people to judge people before they love them. Yeah. And, and I agree with that because I've always said this addiction is addiction is addiction. It doesn't matter if you're addicted to coffee, if you're addicted to drugs or like me, I'm addicted to the gym. You all like is one healthier than the other. Yeah, probably. But it's still a, a difference when you're trying to talk to your friends and they, and then they like they do, they're like, well, I mean, just get over it. Just move past it. Just, and you have to start thinking like substance abuse, since it is not as healthy, you're like, it's not, I can't just move past this. I need help. And like, how, how does your friends or your mother or your, you know, how do they help you if they don't know, they don't understand it themselves? You know, like if you cannot physically put yourself in someone's shoes, how do I help you? Absolutely. And you know, and that's, again, you you hit the nail right on the head is some people, even though they're compassionate and they want to be empathetic, they don't have the proper context nor the lived experience to understand that I just can't stop. Mm-hmm. When a, sometimes a person just can't stop. You know, I, I, I don't like it when, um, and I, I respect people that want to help. And sometimes they just don't have the right terminology, the right, yeah. the right, uh, the right, right background. Put yourself up by the bootstraps. When I was young, this is what I did. And I'm like, bro, when you were young, they didn't make synthetic drugs that attached to your opioid receptors and hijacked yep. your brain's neural pathways. We literally have, uh, you know, things now that are designed designed to hijack your brain and to yep. keep you to keep you hooked. Listen, John, I don't know, you know, I know you, I've not listened to all your podcasts, but I'm going to now because I'm on one. <laughs> so I totally get access to the full library, even the stuff that nobody else has heard, even the, the, the Dave Chappelle cuts. I get on those too. Um, but, you know, seven days of prescribed opioid medication can cause a person's body and brain to become dependent. That seven days. Yeah. Yes, that doesn't mean they got it off the streets. That could mean they got it from their dentist. That's true. And it's seven to 10 days. From seven to 10 days, it takes 99 to 100 and some odd days for them to get that out of their system. Imagine a person that doesn't have a healthy structural support system. They're surrounded by people that are doing the same thing, or they just had a hard roll of the dice. Oh, I agree with you. Biopsychosocial, spiritual issues kind of intersect with them. Next thing you know, the person went from dependency to addiction to all of the things that go with it. And then we have people out here like, well, you know what I would have done? You know, I would have done this. Woulda, shoulda, coulda, whatever. Yeah. We're dealing with a person that is suffering. Maybe you can have that conversation with them after they heal. But until then, uh, don't don't inject your advice on someone when you're not 
you're not qualified to advise them. No, just yeah. because you, you look cool and you got a great job doesn't mean you should advise somebody. Why don't you just hold your hand out and give them a hug for a minute and say, let me get you to somebody that's qualified. Exactly. So, you know, my family and yes. my sister, I've spoken about this on a previous podcast. My sister was addicted to alcohol. Um, couldn't get off, couldn't get off alcohol. She finally didn't have a choice because her kid, her kids got taken from her. And so then that it took something of that measure for her to be like, Oh, well, maybe I should get my stuff together. So, and they say it's hereditary, right? Like substance abuse is hereditary and people are, they grow up with that addictive thinking, which we'll touch on. And I can understand that because I love to drink alcohol. It makes me feel better. I feel better when I drink. I'm more social because I have social anxiety. But the only thing that keeps me from not going down that path is my health. I'm more addicted to health in the gym and alcohol keep, if I drank every day, it would keep me from going to the gym and having good workouts. So thankfully my brain is more addicted to something better, but it could have easily, I could have easily been my sister. I could have easily been like, you know what? Don't care about that. Let's go drink. You Absolutely. Know? Yes, that's so you you've differently associated things with what you do with your lifestyle yeah. choices and you've not allowed those one one thing to outweigh the other. Listen, there's a comfortable median to a lot of things, you know, yeah. anything, anything in excess can be too much going to the gym and too much. You can start tearing, wearing and tearing your body, but you figured out a comfortable medium. You know, there's so many, so many people that don't have all of the other uh, things going on in their life. Mm -hmm. pick One and then run with it. Well, I did. I mean, because my episode I released today was talking about in college when everyone started telling me how good I looked when I lost weight, it became a disorder. And I would go to the gym all the time. If I eat anything, I would try to go work it off. So it did become a problem. Like I was at the gym five, six hours a day. I mean, <laughs> I know. I, I t look, I totally get it. But, you know, society and their definitions and what we, you know, what yep. people and I say we because, you know, I, I've grown up and been, you know, incidentally part of it. Now I know better. But we we love to tell somebody or to define somebody by a physical attribute. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes we start, you know, we can label people something or start convincing them of something. And then all of a sudden they think that that's who they have to be. And that is not true. Um, yep. You know, people can be who and what they want to be. They can they can grow and evolve into what they want to be. And just because it doesn't match my expectation of them doesn't lessen or diminish anything they do. Oh, um, I, love that. I, work, I work in the mental health field. And let me tell you something, sister. I am so proud of people who will gravitate and express their individuality. I don't always necessarily agree with what they're doing, but I don't care. I think <laughs> it's actually pretty. I think it's actually pretty cool yeah. when people start the, the, the innovation um, and expression. So sometimes people allowing them to express who they are, they start making these wild and wonderful innovations. And then they discover that their brain is much more magical than anybody could have ever thought. Who yeah. would, who would invent things that they just got in the box that people put them in? Exactly. How would we have inventions? You know, just, because, just because your skin is a certain color or you become, become a poor neighborhood or because you come from a different country, people love the box people in the stuff and say, okay, well, I know somebody from over there. So I'm going to put you in the same box with them because it mm -hmm. makes me feel good. But get your feelings. That ain't what we know it. <laughs> We want people to get out of the box, explore, learn, innovate. That's how our race evolves, the human race. That's how we evolve by allowing people to express themselves. Don't even get me started on that. That's our <laughs> next podcast that you invite me on. Yeah, we're going to do part two. But no, that's true because when I was growing up in high school, like since I'm the youngest of all of my siblings, and if, if anyone knows my siblings, like they have dabbled in and out of substance abuse and in and out of trouble. And I was always that, oh, 
you're that Grimes kid. Here we go. But I was the good one. But everyone just went ahead to box me in and say that I was exactly like my sisters and brothers until I had to prove I had to prove like, no, I'm not them. Like, I'm actually a good student here. <laughs> but so, you're, 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 you're the act, you know, you know, so it's it's not necessarily that, that you're the anomaly in the family or the exception. It's not that it's you know, I I'm, I'm real cautious with defining people. Yeah. Um, I just think that, you know, I know you personally, your personality is hard work and driven. Um, you're not, you're not afraid to say what you think. Like, like, like legit. You're like, look, <laughs> your outfit don't look good. You just need to know that. <laughs> it's true. It gets me in trouble so much. <laughs> yes. But, but part of you being able to express like that opens the door for you to think outside of what somebody else says about you, because you, you're open to say whatever, then you're open to take criticism from people and you're still gonna let it roll off like whatever. You ain't fixing to put me in that box just because you think. I come from, uh, I have um, some, you know, I'm biracial and I, I grew up in, the, I'm, a, I'm a little older than you are. So I grew up in the biracial South when there wasn't as many people like me mm-hmm. and everybody kept trying to put me either in this box or this box telling me that I had to make a choice. I was raised by a white father and a black mother, and I never chose to go either way. I chose to be their child. Yeah, I chose to be me, and I never let somebody put me in a box. Now, here we go. The pro, you know, the progeny of that wonderful work is here. I am. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly successful human being. I've embraced all cultures that are associated with me, and I like to hang out with people that are different than me because I'm cool with experiencing new things. <laughs> Which is amazing. But so like we were talking about earlier, substance abuse, do you feel like it is biological? Like it's something that you're born with and, or do you feel like it's more, you know, that there's developing these things that hijack your brain and your opioid receptors, or is it, I mean, obviously a combination of both. I actually think that, so I think I I, I look at it from four angles, biological, sociological, um, bio, cycle, social, and spiritual. I think that addiction attaches in each one of those places. And so some of us have genetic predispositions to like certain things. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's something that we're born with. And sometimes we don't even know we're born with it. till somebody gives us a taste of whatever that thing is. And I'll give you an example. You've maybe what, maybe sometimes we've never tried something because we don't like the way it looks. Or somebody told us that it didn't taste good. Okay. And then 25 years old, I took my first taste of ranch dressing at 25, <laughs> 25 years old. I have a bottle of ranch the size of a car now downstairs because <laughs> I literally found out that you can dip every food in ranch and it turns <laughs> it turns into something super fragilistic exbialidocious. Like I remember yeah. that when I was a kid. But you know, so I there's like there's you know there's heredity, but there's also learned things, um, and you can be taught things, and also you know the, the environments that we're in, um, people can have lower inhibitions around mm-hmm. alcohol and drug use and be like, you know what? It's not really that bad. Uh, they can redefine what it is to you. And then a person will use, and then that's where the biology kicks in. That's where the biology will kick in. The person may already have a genetic predisposition. The environment that they're in taught them that it was okay to try something new. And they had a landmine or, you know, something inside of them waiting to be introduced to that. And also I believe in the spiritual side of it. I'm a person that's in long-term recovery. I believe that, you know, I believe that part of the recovery process is, connecting spiritually to, to something greater than yourself. I know that everybody doesn't have a spiritual connection. I'm cool with that. I don't care what you believe in. I, I don't, that doesn't bother yeah. me. Uh, part of my, part of my faith is for me, you know, encourages me to work with people who are different than me. And I have found so often that we in communities, um, we like to around addiction and mental health. 
um, it's different because we're all trying to gravitate toward each other to figure out this, this, this way to overcome the issues. But in communities in general, everybody likes to try to figure out ways to divide themselves from each other. It's true. Like, it's oh, true. Oh, okay, hey, you got a black hat on today. Shoot, we got red hats on. <laughs> um, oh, we drive Priuses. You driving, you know, you driving a Accord. You know, we, yeah. just, we just we constantly do that. So I think that all of that actually contributes to addiction because addiction is the equivalent of isolation. When a person becomes addicted to something, they just totally isolate themselves, remove themselves from anything that can help them. And then they find new communities. But oh the gosh, recovery process, so true. absolutely. They put themselves on an island and then nobody can reach them because you've been, you and me both have been around people and we've watched them slowly change and then become this, this shell of themselves that shuts off the whole outside. Then when you start talking about recovery and resilience and that, that right there is a relationship. Recovery and relationship is, is a symbiotic relationship that works. When you can get to a person and talk to them, you might not be able to convince them of anything, but you can actually listen to them long enough to maybe find somebody that can, or at least point them in the right direction. So, cause you're the grown men fellowship is to help people through recovery and find these resources. And obviously if you've, if you've ever had an addiction, then you, like you said, it's lifelong. You, you could just, if you went and tasted ecstasy again, you may easily just get right back on that train. So how do you, how do you stay and how does grown man fellowship help these people stay in recovery? Like what's your process there? Absolutely. Tools, 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 tools. Listen, (laughs) me and you can have the same toolbox and use it entirely different. Okay. I'm about as Southern as you can get. You can use a wrench to do all kinds of stuff. And at the end of the day, I might be able to flip a piece of bologna with it. It's all about (laughs) how I've learned how to use the tools. So part of the, 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 the grown men fellowship, you know, to be honest with you, grown, grown men fellowship is me. Um, I, I consider myself a, um, a behavioral health resource coach. So when a person needs help, if anybody can hear me right now, if you've got somebody that's, that's coming out of prison, they've had, uh, coming out of jail, coming out of homelessness, anything. If you can't connect them with anybody else, you can connect them with me. John has got my phone number. Just holler at your boy. Um, I can help coach them to find resources that can help them rebuild themselves because we're, we're not always able to do that. But part of grown men fellowship is just that every one of us has unique tool sets, unique, unique skill sets. All of us do. So part of part of the open conversations and fellowshipping is let's identify those strengths that a person already has. And then let's figure out how to utilize that to build those toolkits to help them stay clean. Because I can tell you all day long, well, you need to read this book. Mm-hmm. You need to read that book. Check this out. What if I read on a doctoral level and the person I'm talking to has got an eighth grade reading level? Exactly. So I just get, I just gave them a book that's going to be, to them, it's going to look like it's full of gibberish. Uh, they're going to be like, man, I don't want to read that. But what if I sit down with them and listen to what they like? And because I know what resources are available, I find something that they can use that's right in their ball field, right in their ballpark, right in their, right into wherever their IQs and EQs are and get that to them and let them develop it themselves. Because once a person starts developing their own toolkit, they'll reach out to somebody else that's got a recovery background and just start asking questions. I get people that call me all the time. I mentor quite a few people and they'll call me and say, hey, listen, I just ran into this issue. Do you have any literature, something that I can look at? And they'll tell me real quick, all right, I need something drummed down a little bit because the people that I'm going to take it to are people that are 16 years old, 17 years old. I know exactly where to get them the information. So this works two ways. They're delivering something to somebody that needs resources. It also empowers them in their recovery to be a leader. 
Give them something to do. Give them a leadership role. Let them be the shining light. Like a purpose. Yep. Give them that purpose. Absolutely. Sometimes people falsely associate a success and purpose. And they look at, like, oh, man, this guy's got a car. He must have purpose. That's his purpose. Your mm-hmm. purpose your car in your house is not your purpose. No. The work, the work you do is the purpose. The lives you save, that's the purpose. No, it's funny because a lot of people look at me. I'm, you know, 33, still single, never been married, especially back home. Everyone's like, what's wrong with you? Because from a small town, I'm supposed to be married with five kids by now. And, <laughs> and um, he's showing, he's throwing up six and whispering. Um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but like people look at me and go, well, I don't know why you're so upset. Like, okay, I'm on an antidepressant. I'll take an antidepressant. I've been, I was angry for a really long time and I didn't associate anger with depression until I found a really good nurse practitioner who was like, look, I really think something's going on. And I was very against taking an antidepressant for a really long time until my aunt said, Jonna, would you stop taking your thyroid medicine? And I was like, well, no, I need it. She said, well, maybe your brain's not producing the chemicals you need right now. And I was like, well, I shouldn't be depressed. I have a good job. I have a home. I have a good car. Like, and she was like, yeah, but those are just things. She was like, you haven't found your purpose because I've been in healthcare 10 years now. And I know we were talking before this podcast and yeah, I still like what I do, but just because of all the governmental things with healthcare, I don't feel like my purpose is that anymore. And until I did this podcast, like I love doing this podcast. I'm not saying this podcast is my purpose, but I haven't found that one thing. Cause I've always like, this is going to sound crazy, but I've always been like, ah, and I have a strong voice. I'm meant to change something and I'm going to change something someday. And then like, I was like, I just can't find what that is. Well, you know, so this, you know, this right here might create the ripple effect that you're looking for. I'm a firm believer in not quitting your day job. Oh, so yeah. We can find uh, <laughs> yep, a day, our day. Yeah, right. Our day job pays the bills. But, you know, you so I'm gonna go back to you saying you take antidepressants. Mm-hmm. I think that um, I don't think that that's anything wrong with that. As a matter of fact, I think it's a blessing. We're all blessed differently. Yeah. You now understand the significance and what the antidepressants can do for you as a human being. So you now have a story. So you now can tell a hundred other young women and men that this is what I did. This is my process. These were my fears. And these were my triumphs associated with me taking an antidepressant. I oh, want yeah. to say that because it, boom, there, there it is, you know? And then secondly, you started a podcast. Your voice is perfect for it. Your personality is perfect for it. So continue, continue to express. I think that part of your purpose is right here. This is just me thinking out loud. Of course, I don't know anything. Um, but I think that part of your purpose might be to spread good news. Good news doesn't have to be good news to everybody, but it's got. It can be good news to those who are willing to listen. You got friends. You got family members. You got me. You got my friends. Um, if you can put out good information and you start talking about access to resources, helping people. Matter yeah. of fact. Not even just that, not attacking people. So many people get on podcasts and just attack other people. I try to figure out what the hell they stand for. Like, what, what, what do you stand? I mean, all I've heard you do is talk about everything you're after. What about what you support and who you like and exactly your world? Exactly. Yeah. That's a tangent we got off on, but when you were saying the resources and stuff, so w- working in the ER, when I have people that come in on substance abuse or, you know, psychiatric patients with mental illness, and they do truly want help, like they're, they're, they come, they're reaching out, they're like, I need help. They don't have the finances and the places that we refer them to are really expensive without insurance. So how do we Man. get these, how do we get these people? If, if you're like, so we all, all know, like if you, if you want to be in recovery, First and foremost, you have to make that decision yourself. Absolutely. No one, no one can force you to do that. You have to decide yourself 
okay, I've, I want out of this. Like it's hard, but I want out. So then how, like we, obviously we have you to get resources. Do you have resources that are financially, um, able for people to get to, because I know the ones that we give out in the ER, they're, they're not, they're, they're expensive. Oh, so let me tell you what we do here in Tennessee. And I'll tell you how it, how it can relate to recovery advocates in Alabama. Understanding that the majority of people that are going to come to you through the ERD ED are people who don't have financial resources. They don't yeah. have means. Uh, what we've done here is we have, we, we work with peers, peer advocates, people that are in recovery, we have a whole workforce of people that are in recovery and what they do is they navigate the system for the person. So they already know what resources are available. And instead of giving them a piece of paper says, all right, here's 10 numbers to call. They actually work with them and say, listen, you know, let's, let's find somebody to give you an assessment. Let's figure out where you live. Let's figure out what you're comfortable with. And then let's figure out some of these homegrown programs that might be able to help you sustain until we can get you into one of these other programs. Um, a lot of our states, you know, with respect to each one of their sovereignty and whatever other words we want to call it, they don't necessarily do that. But you do have a large recovery community in Alabama. What I would suggest to anybody that can hear me is reach out and find out who your recovery community is. So if you work in an ER or ED, instead of giving somebody a piece of paper and say, OK, look, glad you came in. Here's four numbers for you to call. What if they can't read? What if they don't have a phone? What if they don't have a car? What if they're going through a psychological issue that's got them in such great um, discouragement that the last thing they want to do is speak to somebody else? What if we could just pick up the phone and call somebody and put them on the phone with them? Yeah. Like we could just put them on the phone with somebody that could speak the same language they do. In the recovery field, uh, being able to connect to someone language-wise is one of the biggest things in the world because, John, you and I are professional practitioners. Uh, sometimes we get lost speaking our, our our work language, our institutional language versus the people that we actually help. Yeah. So we're like, hey, you know, you need to take this, 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 do this. Thing. They're looking at you like, what in the world did she or he just say? So what if you could put him on the phone with somebody that could translate, be that intermediary, that intercessor? Agreed. What if you could find, yeah, somebody that's in recovery that can say, listen, I know of these 12 step meetings that are right down the street. Let's get you connected to this recovery meeting because most of the recovery communities actually have food. They have toiletries through other recovery communities. They also have access to housing, uh, access to transportation. And these are things that are outside of pr the professional institutions, but more community-based. And that that's, to me, the community-based involvement is the answer. People in the community, they, they can hear me. Listen, mm. you ain't got to be in recovery to advocate for somebody that is. So because you have extra or because you're okay. I'm not saying you have to, but what would it hurt to give that extra t-shirt that you're not wearing or a couple of canned goods to one of your local ministries, knowing that it's going to go help somebody and might give them that one extra day that it takes to get them into a program. And, yeah. and that, you know, that's, kind of, that's the way I think is we have to go from the bottom up as well as from the top down, because true to the matter is there's going to, there's always waiting lists to get into, you know, recovery programs, psychiatric programs, mental health agencies. There's always because it's not necessarily because there's no space. It's because of the process time that it takes to get a person in there. And yeah. yeah. You got to look at, you know, the institutions have to protect themselves. They have to make sure that the person can come there. They have to make sure that there's not anybody else there that the person can't mix with. They have to make sure that if the person is co-occurring, that they don't send that co-occurring person to an only substance abuse place or an only mental health place. That, again, that's another podcast. And they but, have to be medically cleared too, so that they're not withdrawing yeah. in the facility. 
absolutely. So detox yeah. is one of the big things that, you know, we, we have a lot of conversations around uh, getting a person to detox, getting them into detox. I will tell people's families that if you love somebody and you know they're going through it, just Google social detox, what social detoxing is. Look it up and start looking at your family members. Look at your, first of all, person first, your family members, don't refer to them as a diagnosis, refer to them by their name. Yes. Okay. And, and when you, and when you humanize a person it how you look at somebody is how you treat them. So if you yeah. can look at somebody like they're, like they're your child, your brother, your sister, your whatever, then you'll treat them different and look up social detox and look at the part you can play in a person getting through those seven to 10 days of withdrawals, et cetera. And then maybe we can figure out how to get them into a program. Things like I will speak to them how I would speak to a friend and I, you know, I'm not offering you advice. I'm telling you how it is. Like, if you want help, we can get you help, but you got to, you got to help me here. You've got to help me yeah. help you. Like, I can't just do this for you, but you're going to have to put in some work and they do appreciate it. They'll be, they'll kind of look at me like, you're right. Yep. Without someone just being like, well, let me do it. Let me do it. I can help you. I can help you. Like I get when people, like you said earlier, they want to help. Everyone wants to help. And that's amazing. But we also have to know when not to help because that is helping, right? Yeah, yeah, no, right, right, absolutely. So you being able to em, engage a person in the walk, in the process, yeah, getting them to realize that you know ha, you got to be the one that that does this. I can take you to water, but you have to drink. Yeah, and I can't just throw you in the water and be like, all right, here you go, because you might, you know, obviously put them in a really bad situation. So you learning. That peer-to-peer -peer interaction um, is you being compassionate and and enough compassionate and caring enough to talk and listen, but also professional enough to understand that all right, you're gonna have to work with me because if you don't work with me, then neither one of us are gonna get this thing done. Yeah. So it's got to be a joint effort, a collaboration, uh, whatever else you want to call it, of us together working to get you to where we're trying to get you to. Um, I've worked in the addiction field most of my professional career. I started out working with, in reentry with prisons and people that were coming out of prison. And I found that the majority of the people that did really well were the ones that you could actually sit down with them and build it together, build the boat together, build the ark together. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna get in the boat and they're going to ride across the, the, the troubled waters. You need to at least show them how the boat was built just in case the boat breaks down, they yeah. know how to fix it back themselves as opposed to, all right, here you go, take off. And then you see them again six months later and they, they never realized even what happened or how they got there. Um, so I think that part of that, I think that you're a great recovery advocate. You know, you're, you're, a, uh, you're helping people understand their role in the process for them. Mm -hmm. And we would think that everybody would do that. But again, we live in a world now where everybody's in a hurry. And everybody immediately goes to the to, to Google and the YouTube and the Facebook to IG and whatever else they want to go to Twitter. And all of a sudden they become an expert at something. Yeah. And, and they're not an expert at something. What they're doing is they're, they're fanning flames, throwing gas on a fire or diminishing a person so much that the person will just agree with them. They'll be like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm fine. Thank you so much for helping me. In actuality, they just hurt the person. Yeah. And I mean, I agree. Like, and I'm not saying I'm the best advocate, like, cause I definitely have my moments, but I also have triggers with patients that come in and have alcohol abuse and things like that, because my, my family has alcohol, alcoholism. So obviously it is a trigger to me. And, I, you know how people like when you're trying to help them, but you're like, let's say I'm trying to help you in your issues, but I'm really actually talking to my sister through you 
you know what I'm saying? And that, and like, it has nothing to do with what you're going through, but you're trying to like talk through someone because you can't talk to that person. <laughs> and oh, I, yes. that's not the, the best thing to do. Like you don't want to, you don't want to treat someone else's addiction, trying to fix your family through someone else or fix your friend through someone else. You, does that make sense? No, <laughs> I, I, it absolutely does. And a lot of people probably do that, mm-hmm. you know, especially when they don't really understand what they're dealing with. Um, so many people, Jonna, so many people think that it's a lot easier than it is. They just think yeah. that I can be, yeah, I can like, you know what? I've got experience with addiction because somebody in my family, one person had went through something. So I'm going to tell you to do what they did. Okay. doesn't work like that because no, everyone's different. Everyone yeah. is different. It's not a cookie cutter approach. And second, the whole conversation around, why don't you just quit? Duh. I might've already tried that, especially when I lost my house, my car, my girlfriend, my wife, my dog. I just sung a country song all the way to the sea. Um, didn't even mean to, lost my razor to it. I had my razor to it. That, that way I went straight country. Um, but, you know, so many people think that that's all you have to do is say, I yeah. quit. Yeah, like, no, I, I, it's not that easy. Like I've, I've never had in a substance abuse, but again, like we talked about earlier, I've had addictions to other things like the gym and coffee and stuff. I've tried to quit coffee, cannot do it. Like, but no one see society, like you said, quote unquote society doesn't see a caffeine addiction, anything wrong with it. Cause in America, we're supposed to stay up 24 seven and work anyways. So there's nothing wrong with being addicted to work. There's nothing wrong to being addicted with fitness or your body or caffeine, but then someone's addicted to alcohol and it's like, Oh, wait a minute. Nope. Sorry. Done with that. Well, I, I think that the, 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 the medium there though, is you being addicted to the gym is a healthy lifestyle change versus the alcohol addiction. And that, again, that's just me, my, my opinion, every, of course, everything taken, taken out of, out of moderation into uh, full blown. If I don't do this right now, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. You know, th- those types of uh, that type of thought process can make things unhealthy. I will say this part of my recovery journey was sports back training, you know, fighting. Yeah. I got into mixed martial arts, uh, you know, I've been a lifelong martial artist. I've trained since I was a kid and, you know, I still train. I still teach. I teach jujitsu when I have a time. I teach kickboxing, you know, whenever, whenever I got I mean, that's how we initially met is that my friend yep. and I came to your MMA class in Winchester and did your class. Um, and then I was like, Hey, can you help me lift weights? And then you hand me some five pound weights. And I'm like, Monty, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I can lift heavier than this. Yeah. yeah your personality ain't five pounds. Not no <laughs> way. You're like, here you go. I was like, really? <laughs> ain't no five pounds in John and Grimes life not a lick of five pounds so if anybody can hear me y'all she lifts way more than five put a zero on it and get out get out the way there's a song that she wrote that I just not, you know again I'm not gonna give a full credit for it I believe it was ludicrous and mystical and somebody else but anyway um, but right but you're right though you know th- that was my path um, to keep to maintain where I was at. It was kind of, I had to retrain my brain for years, Jonna. And as I retrained my brain, um, it was a lot easier for me to accept constructive criticism and to, to move back into more healthy lifestyles. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, one of the other things that really, 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 really helped me was helping other people realize the positive effects of fitness. You know, I don't know everybody, everybody's not going to go in the gym and listen, I don't know. Sometimes people hear two different songs when you hear the same music, two different interpretations. I did not say that everybody has to work out. I simply said that I did. 
and it and was that helped your recovery. Helped my recovery, and I know a lot of other people that it did as well. I know some people that their recovery came from like totally different other stuff, you know, different things, chess, checkers, cards, uh, drawing, all these other wonderful things. And some people just sit and look and stare at blank walls and think, hey, more power to them. I don't want to know what's going on up there just in case they're, they're solving the world's <laughs> problems and don't, I want to be included on it. Um, so I have a question for you. Okay. Um, so this is, what number is this of your podcast? Well, I don't know because I always pre-record them. <laughs> So I think okay. you're going to be in April because I have it done down to March. So probably 11 or 12. Okay. Fair enough. What exactly, like what one thing can you attribute that to attribute to that, that made you just go ahead and do it? I'm just curious. To start a podcast? Yeah. Just what, what one, something sent you over the edge. You thought about it. You thought about it. You thought about it, but something took you out of pre-contemplation to contemplation to action. Something made you do it. So I, so my personal trainer, Annie Miller, um, I started a, a macro nutrition page that, I, cause I got certified in nutrition right before COVID and me and her, me and Annie talk a lot. And I was talking to her about starting a podcast cause I like to talk. I like to talk a lot. And I was like, you know, I've got to find something to do. I need to find a hobby. And I was like, why don't I just vent all my frustrations in a podcast? Cause people laugh at me when I'm venting at work. Like I'm seriously upset and I'm seriously mad and people just start laughing and I'm like, it's not funny. And they're like, no, it really is. Like, so I was like, well, maybe I'm comical. Let's start a podcast. So I was talking to Annie and I was like, no one's going to listen. And she said, well, if no one listens, they're already not listening. So why not just start it? And I was like, yeah, why not? that's a good point. Like, like no one's listening anyways. So <laughs> if no one listens, then what changed? Nothing. I love, I love her approach to this. Like, yeah. You know, what else do you have to lose? Like, you know, you know, if, if only me and her listen, there's two more people that were listening when you didn't record it. Yeah. And I think it was just more of like, I have social anxiety. And so a lot of it was, this was a therapy for me because I'm trying to learn to talk to more people because I know it doesn't seem like I'm shy, but I actually am shy when I first initially meet people and I have a hard time like thinking before I speak, obviously. And I just, so I'm trying to get better at that. So I thought this podcast would just help me with that. Well, well, the pot, I can, I can feel the um, empowerment coming from your, your voice. That's the reason I asked that <laughs> is because you, you do. Okay. Well, what I was saying was I, I appreciate you letting me come on here. Um, I can hear the power in your voice. The, this is something that you, you're impassioned about. So I absolutely see you being able to reach a lot of people uh, well, because you're going to ask, yeah, you're going to ask the right tough questions. Plus you from my hometown, we country folks, we do big <laughs> things in the country. So to other people that don't understand. Yeah. Well, I mean, I really wanted to have you on this podcast and just so you know, you're the first guy I've interviewed so far. Every podcast has been a woman. So oh, wow. you will be the first male on my podcast. Well, tell everybody that I said, hello. And, um, hi, I joined elite company. <laughs> Uh, so I'm thankful to be, I'm, I'm empowered now. You know, I'm with girl power all the way. I appreciate y'all letting me jump in. No, I really appreciate it. And can you tell everyone where they can find you if they need help and to reach Absolutely. out to you? So you can email me uh, if you need help. If you just want to chat, uh, my email is grownmenfellowship at outlook.com. Grownmenfellowship at outlook.com. Or you guys, can, you can reach out to me at 615 785-6063, 615-785-6063. Um, I'm a, you know, I've, I've got a lot of uh, experience working in the behavioral health care system. So I love to sit and chat with people to help them, you know, you know, to realize that they, that they have resources around them and to figure out strategically how to use them. 
So I'm always open, willing to come and talk to anybody. And, you know, I haven't been to Huntsville in a long time. So if you guys just holler at me, I will surely come to Huntsville and you guys can take me out to one of the awesome places to eat. And we can just sit down and talk about resources and how to get this thing done. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And I will link all that in the show notes for everyone so that they will be able to see it. And Monty, thank you again so, so much. And yes, thank you, Jada. All right, guys, that's it for this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, and share the podcast. That way it gets out into the world and into the ears of other people. You can always find me at babbles underscore nonsense on Instagram. And until next time, bye.